Good evening and welcome to Rare Book School. This is Wednesday the 30th of July 19, 2008. <laughs> the 2008 part I should be able to do. I'm not responsible for the day of the month after six weeks of Rare Book School. Actually, it's only been two weeks of Rare Book School. We did a year, we did a week. <laughs> we did a week in early July and then skipped a week. And this is the second of the two weeks that followed. There's one terrible year, 1984, when we did six weeks in a row. And moreover, in each of those six weeks, there were three evening lectures, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Staff all went to the hospital <laughs> six weeks from acute indigestion. <clears throat> Still, it was great fun, and it's great fun tonight to welcome Peter Stallybrass to this podium, uh, to which he is no stranger, to uh, speak on recycling woodcuts and the printing of books. That's the part of the title he was responsible for. Since <laughs> I have to make the posters, I'm always looking for something showy and cheap and vulgar <laughs> for the uh, title of lectures. And Peter was very accommodating. It's a pleasure to welcome him to Rare Book School. Thank you, Terry. It's, it's really an honor to be here. It's one of my favorite places, and I feel that I've spent so much of my life in America um, haunted by Terry's presence, not just by Terry himself, but I suddenly realized coming here that the three people, the three librarians I've worked far away the, uh, most closely with, uh, Dan Traster and Jim Green um, and Karen Nips, were all at Columbia Library School. We were all trained so that... And, I always think of Michael also as a kind of honorary Philadelphian, since he's with us, fortunately, so much. So, thank you. In his autobiography, Benjamin Franklin wrote, In 1717, my brother James returned from England with a press and letters to set up his business in Boston. In fact, James Franklin, Benjamin's older brother, brought back from London not only a press and type, but also wood blocks. Here is one of the blocks that James bought from Benjamin Harris in London. Uh, it's actually a forgery, but that's, I mean, I'm going to forget that. You have to forget that it's a forgery, because I didn't believe it was a forgery at first. Uh, so forget that. Just imagine it really is the wood block. Um, okay. Uh, it is a portrait of a 17th century man, but whom? It's copied probably from another copy of an engraving of Franz Hals's 1639 portrait of Descartes. But why would James Franklin want a portrait of Descartes, whose work he never published? The answer is that he, pra he probably did not know, and almost certainly did not care, whom this was a portrait of. If he thought it was anyone, it was most likely W.W., whom it represented uh, in the frontispiece of Harris's 1716 edition of William Winstanley's The New Help to Discourse. In Boston, the woodblock materialized someone else again, James Hodder, 
whose arithmetic James Franklin printed in 1719. There are two kinds of recycling at work here. The first is the recycling of an image, the copying of copies of copies of Hulse's portrait. The second is the recycling of an actual block of wood, probably carved in London and then transported across the Atlantic to fulfill new functions. Woodcuts remained a much cheaper way to reproduce images than engravings long after engraved author portraits became common. Engravings had to be printed, as you all know, on a separate press at a cost that often made them the most expensive part of a book. Equally important from an economic point of view is the fact that a woodblock made from good wood can be reused for hundreds of thousands of impressions, decade after decade after decade. Houghton Library, for instance, owns two woodblocks depicting plants that were first used in Prague in 1562 in a bohemian translation of Pietro Mattioli's Materia Medicinale. In 1565, the two blocks, along with hundreds of others, were transported to Venice, where they were used in Valgarisi's Latin edition of Mattioli's Herbal. According to Valgarisi, more than 30,000 copies of Mattioli had already been sold prior to his edition. In 1585, the same blocks were being used in Venice for the 17th edition of Mattioli. And I mean blocks, I mean, I'm actually talking not about copies, the actual physical blocks. You can even trace the wormholes uh, as they develop. These are not forgeries, I should emphasize. These are the actual blocks. Um, uh, in, so in 1585, the same blocks were used in Venice for the 17th edition of Mattioli, published in Italian. And their continuous use could be traced through Bartolomeo Alberti's 1604 Venetian edition to Paris in the 18th century, where they were reused for a French treatise on trees and plants in 1755, nearly two centuries after their first use. Not only were engravings much more expensive to make than woodcuts, they also wore out even within the printing of a single edition. The famous engraving of Shakespeare in the first folio, for instance, was recut twice uh, during a print run of perhaps 750 copies. As far as I know, Droeschart's engraving was never reused to represent anyone but Shakespeare. And this is certainly the norm. Engraved portraits, like the paintings that they copy, are usually, and I mean usually, not always, are usually linked to a single named person. The copper plate of James Logan, for instance, uh, was only used to represent Logan. One can certainly find exceptions. It was both a thrifty and a politically advisable move to transform a 1658 engraving of Oliver Cromwell's son and successor uh, into Charles II two years later uh, when monarchy was reinstituted. Uh, although most of the plate is untouched, not only have the face and the coat of arms been changed and a crown added, but also the face and perhaps most conspicuously of all, uh, Charles's most important feature, his hair, uh, have been re-engraved. Charles, as usual, is having one of his good hair days, uh, thanks to his wig, uh, even if he has to make do with another person's body. However, the softness of the copper from which Renaissance plates were made usually meant that it was impractical to reuse the same portrait for more than one person. By contrast, woodblocks often have an extraordinary material persistence, being passed on from printer to printer and both preceding and superseding the personal identities 
to which they could be attached. Take, for instance, the publisher's device of Gabriel Giolito of Ferrara and his heirs, first used uh, in the 1570s or earlier. The phoenix arising from its ashes and the motto below, uh, Semper Eardem, always the same, were familiar in England because of their appropriation by Elizabeth I. But the initials that appear on the urn below, GGF, GGF, um, firmly established this device as the Ferrara publishers. However, the device that you're actually looking at was not made in Italy and was never used for a book published by Giolito or his heirs. It was cut in London for John Wolfe. The GGF, like the title page as a whole, deliberately disguising the identity of the publisher of Machiavelli's subversive work. But William Stansby had no reason to disguise his identity. Um, when he reused the same block, still with GGF on the urn, for a royal patent that he printed for, for John Budge in 1611, even though Stansby's name occurs nowhere on the title page. And the same block, still with Giolito's initials, was recycled by Cantrell Legg uh, for, for a Cambridge University Press imprint in 1619. John Wolfe himself made a habit of copying Italian publishers' device, devices, even when he had nothing to hide. In the 1580s, he copied the device of the Florentine publishers Jacopo and Filippo Giunta, uh, consisting of a fleur-de-lis with small flowers sprouting out from it diagonally. That's his copy on the right. It's not very good, but well, it's actually not bad. Um, Wolfe was particularly fond of this device and made other versions, including one with the initials IW. I mean, as you all know, I is IJ, so IW stands for the I there is for John uh, in this period. So IW, uh, and it also included one of his favorite mottos in Domino Fido. When Adam Islip recycled this latter device in 1602, he went to the trouble of cutting out Wolfe's motto from the block, although one can still detect the I of in in the bottom left, just about, there's the eye of in, it went round here. So it's just, please cut out the rest of the motto. Um, but he left Wolf's initials, IW, it's very hard to see in this, I'm sorry, it's a bad reproduction, there's the eye, and the W's even harder to see, it's over there. Uh, but he left Wolf's initials, IW, either side of the fleur de lis. And the initials were still there when the same block was recycled for the fourth folio of Shakespeare, almost a hundred years after its first use. But by now, the woodblock was on its last legs, as one can see from a vertical crack. There's the vertical crack being down there. An over-obsession with first editions has given a very skewed idea of the relation between woodcut images and texts. The economics of printing, particularly in the boonies of 16th and 17th century England, meant that it was the norm for the same block to be repeatedly used in a wide range of contexts. And the modern heroes of many 18th century ballads are still wearing 17th or even 16th century clothes, not because they are nostalgic for an earlier period, uh, but because the woodblocks that depict them are a century or more old. But why and when, we may ask, was it necessary to make material changes to a woodblock when it was recycled? In Renaissance England, at least, Holinshed's chronicles could recycle the same woodblock to represent Edward VI, 
uh, and to represent King James VI of Scotland. Although that may have been something of an embarrassment when James VI became James I of England and his rather myopic face became familiar in London from new woodcuts and engravings and coins. But what about the appearance of God, or rather his disappearance? In 1568, Matthew Parker, Archbishop of Canterbury, oversaw the production of one of the most expensive books of the 16th century, the Bishop's Bible. It's a much, much grander production than the King James Bible. It included not only engravings of Elizabeth I, the Earl of Leicester, and William Burley, but also a wide range of woodcut initials with the coats of arms of the book's patrons, including of Parker himself. There were no competent craftsmen in England, however, to make good woodblocks for the larger illustrations. So Parker rented a series of blocks from Cologne. The imported blocks were based upon designs by Virgil Solis that had been copied onto woodblocks for use in Catholic Bibles. Having gone to the expense of importing these blocks, Parker found that they would not answer the needs of the new Calvinist orthodoxy in England, which viewed representations of God as idolatrous. In the cut of the creation of Eve, for instance, there was no escaping the looming presence of God. What to do? The answer was simply to cut out God from this and four other blocks. This is the same block, and I apologize for the difference of quality. Uh, I've got a bad reproduction of the, of the top one. So this is exactly the same physical block, um, and I'll, I'll point to some details so you'll see more clearly what's going on. Uh, the answer was simply to cut out God from this and four other blocks, where God had been a plug, which means a piece of wood uh, that's inserted uh, to fill the hole. Uh, God has, is replaced by the tetragrammaton, And so, uh, the plug gives Eve's arms that reach up in supplication to the now-concealed Godhead. And where God was, we now have a rabbit, uh, the Messiah for whom we've all been waiting. Uh, but my favorite part of the reworked block is the right-hand side of a new hill, which is over, this is the new hill here which is, as you can see, uh, my favorite uh, part of the reworked block is the right-hand side of a new hill that has suddenly appeared. It is composed out of part of God's pontifical robe. In 1570, the wood blocks were shipped back to the continent where the figure of God was meticulously reinserted for the printing of a Catholic Bible in Antwerp. Finally, the block returned to Cologne for further reuse in Catholic Bibles. A few weeks ago, I found in the Library Company of Philadelphia, uh, one of my favorite places, and I should say it's been wonderful to hear Andrea's talk, uh, and, you know, just, just great. To, but what I, so what, if any of you haven't worked in the Library Company of Philadelphia, you should do so. It's just a fabulous place. Uh, I've got vested interest there, but still. <laughs> um, a few weeks ago, and it's also, I should say, a great European collection, unknown. I mean, it's, everyone knows what it is, an Americanist library. It's got a very, very, it's a great European collection, a great collection of English books, because, of course, in the uh, 18th century, Americans were printing very few books. Uh, nearly all the books are imported. 
a few weeks ago, I found in the Library Company of Philadelphia a German Bible that had been printed in Cologne uh, in 1621, over 50 years after the printing of the Bishop's Bible in London. By this time, the whole that English craftsmen had made had been expanded and regularized, and a new plug had been inserted. But the gaps between the plug and the original wood are still clearly visible. Um, so there it goes down here now. So it's, been, it's, it's a wider gap and then across there. I, can you all see that? And I should say, just going back, I just go back, another sort of interesting little detail is all these rays. You can see the remains of the rays up there. Um, there are lots of other little details that you can see. Um, in the case of the 1568 Bishop's Bible, recycling was part uh, of a carefully worked out process of adaptation, uh, a different ideological context necessitating the remaking of the image. The Archbishop of Canterbury himself must certainly have been involved in the decision to recut the imported blocks. But the images of God on the excised wood were nevertheless carefully preserved, as I mentioned, for reinsertion. But not every image of God was excised, only the largest images. Size matters. In the cut of Cain killing Abel, the block remained unchanged, although it contained a clear image of a papist God in the top left-hand corner. The expense and difficulty of erasing every trace of idolatry led to systematic inconsistencies. This was an inevitable consequence of the economics of printing and reprinting. Often even the appearance of God was of little consequence compared to the need to reuse an impressive cut. In the 1615 Folio Book of Common Prayer, there are a wide range of historiated letters copied from an Ovidian alphabet that had been cut by Arnu Nicolai in Antwerp more than half a century earlier. They include an IJ of Jesus. You can see the, you can see the top of Jesus. Uh, they include the IJ of Jesus in which Apollo pursues Daphne, who is beginning to be transformed into a tree. And a sea that is used for Christ in which Mercury is flying off to the right while Jupiter necks with the young Ganymede seated beside him. <laughs> It is true that there was a long tradition of Ovid Moralise in which the most salacious of classical myths was reinterpreted as Christian allegory. But I don't think that many Renaissance readers, any more than all but the most diligent and pious of modern readers, would have interpreted Ganymede as Christ, lovingly responding to the advances of God the Father. <laughs> and if a Renaissance reader was tempted to give such a reading, what would he or she have made of the hundreds of other decorative letters in Bibles and prayer books in which naked women rode or were part of uh, men, man goats and hermaphrodite satyrs sported erections. I hope you can all see the erection uh, <laughs> here and the testicles. And here are all the more spectacular ones because it becomes a sort of flower. It sort of, you know, sort of sprouts out. My own view is that these decorative initials were used largely as metapunctuation, helping readers to find their way around a text that was conveniently separated into prefatory materials, books, chapters, verses, and commentary, not only textually, but also visually. They helped you to get your finger in the right place. 
and by their relative sizes to see the relations between major pauses at the beginning of the New Testament, for instance, medium pauses at the beginning of books, and minor pauses at the beginning of chapters. The letters are clearly chosen primarily for their size so as to mark divisions, and the particular choice of a decorative initial usually depended on whichever relevant initial of the right size was to hand. Compositors were paid for their speed as well as their accuracy, and if their fingers sometimes picked up St. John, they were just as likely to pick up a satire. But the actual size of the letter did make a difference, and the larger the image, the more likely an attempt to make at least some correlation with the text. The problem with 16th and 17th century decorative initials is that they seem to require the reader to be systematically unsystematic, to treat most of them as navigational aids, but also to pay attention to the important minority that were ideologically meaningful. To take just the most obvious example of the latter, of the ideologically meaningful, among the dozens of decorative initials that compositors used in Bibles in relatively random ways, four historiated initials were nearly always used systematically if they were used at all. The initials at the beginning of each of the four Gospels depicting the evangelists with their appropriate symbols, St. Matthew and his angel, Gospel of St. Matthew, Gospel of St. Mark, St. Mark and his lion, Gospel of Luke, St. Luke and his ox, the Gospel of, God, of John, uh, John and his eagle, with again the tetragrammaton top left, not God. But there were also more complicated cases, like the 1611 King James Bible, from which all historiated initials with an explicitly Christian meaning have been excised in what looks like a Calvinist pogrom. Other seemingly decorative elements, however, were specially cut for this book. One of the questions that has been repeatedly raised, which I won't go into, is whether it's really appropriate to call this Bible either the authorized version, which most people would deny now, or the King James Bible. I would argue that the latter title, the King James Bible, is certainly appropriate and with a vengeance. Look, for instance, at the first page of Genesis. Four separate decorative woodblocks have been used on this one page. The cut in the center at the top is made from a recycled block with no specific significance. But what are the two small flowers either side of it? A rose on the left and a thistle on the right. And what are the eye in the beginning in which roses and thistles twine around each other? These are not just any flowers. To this day, thistles and roses are the emblems of Scotland and England, the two kingdoms that James united. They are indeed part of a programmatic attempt to compose Great Britain, an entity that would not officially exist for another century. The 1611 Bible is named not only after King James of England, but also after King James VI of, of Scotland, both of whom, of course, were embodied in the same person. And James was passionate in his attempt to unify the two kingdoms. That union is materialized at the very beginning of Genesis. As only Brits know, and perhaps only the English at that, in the beginning was Great Britain. Not only is the union of England and Scotland repeatedly materialized through ornamental cuts, but also the claims that James inherited from Elizabeth I to rule France 
and Ireland. The table by which one finds Easter, that's the top image, uh, in any given year is headed by a cup that alternates roses and thistles, and the claim to the sovereignty of France is asserted by a French fleur-de-lis at the centre. And the table of lessons is the one below, is preceded by a block composed of the Rose of England, the Thistle of Scotland, the Fleur-de-Lis of France, and the Harp of Ireland. As alas was and is all too common, the Dragon of Wales has been subsumed into the Rose of England. As any of you have attended an English versus Welsh rugby uh, match, you will know that the Welsh hate the English even more than the Irish. An extraordinary amount of money was expended in early 17th century London in the creation of a wide range of ornamental cuts, visualising an empire that would not exist legally for another century. But even, an elaborate, even in as elaborate a production as the King James Bible, the new cuts were only a small part of the decorative materials needed for the printing of a Renaissance folio. Most of the woodblocks were recycled from earlier projects. The King's Printing House, where the Bible was created, was the repository of material artefacts from different periods and countries. A repository, for instance, of mid-16th century Flemish woodcuts, of type made in France 30 years earlier, of ornamental head and tail pieces made in England in the 1590s. It is striking, though, uh, that most of the new decorative cuts are in the prefatory materials and at the beginning of the Old Testament not in the New Testament, despite the fact that the latter was, for Christians, the theological key to the Bible as a whole. Compare the first page uh, of the Old Testament with the first page of the New Testament. There are striking similarities, not least in the reuse of the same three woodblocks in the same order at the top of the page. But there is a striking difference in the kinds of initials that are used to begin the two testaments. As I've already noted, it was common in 16th century Bibles to begin the New Testament with an historiated initial depicting St. Matthew and his angel. But such images of saints had been banished from most vernacular English Bibles by the end of the 16th century. What to put in place of St. Matthew? One needs a T, of course, since the first word of St. Matthew in English is that splendid theological concept, the. And it so happens that the T in the finer Ovidian alphabet that we've already seen, which is the one of Ganymede, this is the same part of the same alphabet. Uh, so we've seen Ganymede uh, and Mercury and, and so on. Uh, and it so happens that the T in the finer Ovidian alphabet that we've already seen represents Neptune, his trident aloft, accompanied by his hippocamps. So in this most important of Christian books, the most important part of it begins with a letter celebrating a pagan god. There was, however, nothing at all arbitrary about the compositor's choice of this specific T out of all the T's that he could have used. The printer's copy that he was following was not a manuscript, but sheets of the 1602 Bishop's Bible that had been marked up with innumerable corrections by the translators. And the 1602 Bishop's Bible used the exact same woodblock to begin the New Testament. One of the myths that is endlessly repeated to us by fantasies of authorial foul papers is that a printer's copy is a manuscript. But compositors and correctors alike avoided manuscripts whenever they could 
and for very good reasons, particularly in Renaissance England, given the extraordinary vagaries of script, spelling, punctuation, uh, and capitalization. When the various committees set up set about translating the King James Bible, they did not write out a manuscript. They entered corrections onto the sheets that they had been sent, unbound printed sheets of the 1602 Bishop's Bible. To put it another way, the 1611 King James Bible is actually a reprint of the 1602 Bishop's Bible uh, with corrections. In other words, every word that's not corrected, so to speak, is the bishop, is the reprint of the bishop's Bible. And yet virtually no one who's written about the King James Bible talks about this or about the significance of the bishop's Bible. They always talk about other Bibles uh, because the bishop's Bible is thought not to be that interesting. Here, at the beginning of the New Testament, the compositors were simply following... Go back. Yeah, here at the beginning of the New Testament. The compositors were simply following their copy working in the same printing house in which they had printed that copy eight years earlier. And what had they done in 1602? They had followed a copy that had followed a copy that had followed a copy of the first edition of the Bishop's Bible printed in 1568. Because although a substantial woodcut of St. Matthew and his angel appears at the beginning of the 1568 New Testament, the first decorative initial is a T with Neptune on it. The 1568 cut is actually made from a different block than the one for the 1602 Bible. On the former, the letters MC have been carved, commemorating the patronage of Archbishop Canterbury. Uh, There's the M. M for Matthew, that's his first name, and C for Canterbury. So Matthew Canterbury, Matthew Canterbury. And this, this letter, the one 1568, as you can see, was reused um, more than 40 years later when it appears in an English translation of St. Augustine's City of God. As for, the, as for King James, as for the King James Neptune, it had already suffered a lot of wear and tear when it was used in 1611, as one can see from the vertical crack on the right. So it was already cracking when it was used uh, the first time. I don't know if that's going to be visible here. The crack goes down there. It's more visible here. It goes right the way down. Can anyone see that? I hope someone can see it anyway. So there's a crack going down, all the way down. It cannot have lasted much longer. I want to conclude with the recycling of a historiated initial in a single edition, the 1574 Folio Bishop's Bible, a mangled copy of which the great Philadelphia bookseller, George Allen, sold me for $100 more than 20 years ago rather than cut it up to sell the many substantial woodcuts that it contains separately. Uh, I should say that, you know, one of the great fondnesses I have uh, for the Rare Book School is the range of messed up books. I much prefer messed up books to clean books. I mean, clean books are of very little interest to me. And uh, one of my favorite exhibitions when, in the 1970s when I was teaching at the University of Sussex, the library put an, on an exhibition trying to dissuade students from defacing books. And for me, it had exactly the opposite effect. I thought, what wonderful defaced books these were because you've got a fantastic intellectual history of Sussex University. The Trotskyists particularly objected to shake Shakespeare's last plays. So you've got things in the margin like bourgeois wanker. And then, 
And then the Communist Party strongly objected to the Trotskyist take on Shakespeare, so they would respond with things like infantile leftism, uh, responding to it. These, of course, are for future historians, are going to be the great books, you know, not the clean copies. Uh, And when I work in the Renaissance, I try to get the dirtiest copies I can, the ones that are most mangled, most used, most written in, uh, because they tell you the most. Much as I love the book uh, that George sold me, I only really started looking at it as opposed to admiring and perusing it when I began this project. The compositors for this 1570 edition had several decorative eyes to choose from, including these. I noted before the inappropriateness to modernize of the use of the centaur written by a woman in a Bible. So there's the... I actually don't know if the woman's writing was part of the centaur. I'm not quite clear. But in 1574, not only this cut, but also cuts of satires with erections, uh, caused no problems at all. There was, in fact, only one eye that caused problems, and even then, not at first. It is the IJ on the bottom right, depicting St. John and his eagle, looking here more like a crippled seagull. Uh, That's the the crippled seagull there. Uh, This is not a particularly distinguished uh, uh, cut. Uh, I should also note, by the way, that IJ is a kind of, I don't know what you call it exactly, it's a kind of pun, because it's the I of in the beginning that's used, you know, so it can be used for in the beginning, which is the first words of St. John's Gospel, but it's also the J of St. John, which is a capital I, so it's, I don't know what you call that, whether it's a sort of, but it's like a, sort of, like a pun, the letter's doing both things. It's I for in the beginning and J for John, uh, because it's the same letter uh, in this period. The design is a copy of a cut that had already been widely uh, used from at least as early as 1555. The 1574 John I, I'm sorry, there's a terrible pun that, but John, you know, the John I, I'm going to call it so it's not Johnny, but John I, uh, the 1574 uh, John I was reused 27 times in the printing of the edition, but not once in the most appropriate places, namely St. John's Gospel, his three epistles, and his Revelation. This can partly be explained in the simplest of ways. In Revelation, 19 of the 22 chapters begin with the word and. Of the other three chapters, one begins with after, one with thee, and one with unto. In other words, Revelation called for 20 decorative A's, one decorative T, and one decorative V, but no decorative I's. Nor do any chapters in the epistles of John begin with I in English. But there are three IJs at the beginning of chapters in the Gospel of John, so why does it not appear there? When the compositor set the beginning of St. John's Gospel, he carefully selected for the first and only time a much larger and more sophisticated eye that also depicted St. John and his eagle, although rather more, more splendidly, as you can see. You can contrast the two. They're both St. John and they're both looking up into the sky. But here, of course, you see John is seeing what is, I think, meant to represent Christ, although you really couldn't be sure. I think it's meant to represent a baby Christ. I have no idea, really. But it's certainly God in some form or another. And there you've got the tetragrammaton. So it's worth noting that in this cut, John sees not Christ, but the tetragrammaton. This is a John fit for Calvinist consumption. 
So too is the larger cut of John above the decorative initial. So now the decorative initial, this is the same, this is all just above each other. And there's the decorative initial we've been looking at. Here's St. John, here's his eagle. Um, but the image of God, there was an image of God in, this, in, the, in the top cut before, but it's been cut out and replaced with a plug. But I can think of no explanation for why the compositors did not use the smaller John I at the beginning of the other two chapters. My guess is that given the number of times a smaller I was reused, it seemed as generic as the eyes with foliage and flowers, or, for that matter, with the centaur ridden by a woman. Sometimes a John I is just an I. So John I gets employed for chapters beginning with, for instance, Jacob, Job, I, and in. But then in Isaiah, something very curious happened. The generic John I suddenly stopped being generic for the compositor, or the corrector, or the printer. Let us, for convenience, call him the compositor. Between chapters 20 and 27 of Isaiah, the compositor, for the first time, must have actually seen this letter. I mean, it's one thing to use a letter, it's nothing to see. So, between chapters 20 and 27 of Isaiah, the compositor, for the first time, must have actually seen the letter. Seen the letter, that is, not just as a letter, but as an image. And the image clearly offended him, because he got a knife or a chisel and excised the image of Christ at which John is gazing. Why now? If one looks at the headnote to chapter 27, one reads, A prophecy of the coming of Christ and destruction of idolatry. The compositor must have read this as meaning that when Christ comes, images of Christ must disappear. And yet the excised image leaves a haunting presence behind in the rays of light whose reasons for existence has ceased to exist. Throughout the rest of the Bible, the compositors will continue to reuse the IJ of John for in, Judith, judge, it. The letter becomes once again generic. Yet the remaining rays of light mark the flickering passage between reading and seeing, word and image, the woodcut as recycled ornament and as ideological crisis. Thank you. Stoddard likes to say that most copies of a manuscript are pretty much alike, but all printed copies of a book are different. Thank you very much. Please join the speaker for the reception that follows immediately in the Alderman Library, first floor, staff lounge.